If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way to the book of James. We are continuing our, our summer series through the New Testament letter written by Pastor James, pastor of the church in Jerusalem, brother to our Savior Jesus Christ himself. And as you do, I want to just extend my thank you as well to everyone who's been coming to the summer dinner series. This has been the most consistently well-attended summer dinner series yet. Usually the crowd starts off great, and by week three and four and on, it just dwindles down to basically the staff and us just hanging out together. Um, but you guys have, have come out all three weeks. It's been fantastic. Questions have been fantastic. Um, I had the privilege this last week of doing a rapid fire run through questions that were asked about Redemption Hill. And there was one question in particular that I wanted to answer, but I didn't answer because I was wrestling with the answer because of our text this morning. So I wasn't sure how I could answer it on Wednesday without getting into the sermon for Sunday, but yet I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to say on Sunday, so I just left it alone on Wednesday. But here's the question. It's a great question. What do I think is the biggest area of spiritual blindness in the church? Sub-question. What do I think is the biggest area of spiritual blindness at Redemption Hill? Pastor James, being a wise and gracious pastor. I believe this morning where we are in his letter will take us into the heart and tease out for us what, what I think is our greatest area of spiritual blindness, our greatest area of self-deception, the most dangerous thing for you and I as God's people here, even in, in this local church. And before we do that, let me pray for us and, and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you again, for the rich privilege of being here this morning, Lord, for being able to gather together with your people and to sing with our, our mouths songs of joy and gratitude and celebration to who you are, to, to you, for your grace and your mercy. And, and now as we begin to quiet ourselves, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would bring our hearts to a place of surrender Lord, that we might hear your voice in your word, that we might be able to hear your voice speak to us and, and turn the lights on in our blindness. And we ask that you would do that this morning for our transformation, for our joy, and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we jump into how Pastor James, I think, begins to get to the heart of our spiritual blindness, the heart of our darkness I want to read something from Cornelius Plantinga, who's a philosophy professor, writer. Uh, he wrote a book about sin itself, uh, called Not the Way It Was Meant to Be. And in that book, he says this, and I was reminded of it this week, and it struck me, and I think it goes well with what James is saying this morning. Plantinga said, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. It's a great picture. Christians hated sin. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who may have lost his temper on Sunday morning might wonder if he could still receive Holy Communion that day. A woman who envied an attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this hidden envy in her heart threatened her very salvation. But the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation that you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. 
At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. James is no stranger to jolting God's people. So in chapter four, verse four, he says this, you adulterous people. From the start of the letter as brothers, to James chapter four, verse four, adulterers. Now, what is James saying here about God's people? What, what is it he's trying to communicate? What's the idea that in a very three very short words, he is actually communicating to them? Well, the Bible gives us a number of tremendously rich metaphors that help us to understand various dynamics of our relationship with God. It, each metaphor helps us to understand God uniquely and our relationship to him uniquely in a way the other metaphors don't. So when we read throughout the Bible that God is our king or we say he is our king, we're often referring to his authority and our obedience. When we read about God being a shepherd and his people being a, a, his sheep, we think about our vulnerability and our need and his care his care for us, his leading of us, his direction of us. And, and there are other metaphors throughout the Bible as well, but the one that we have here that James is referring to is a rich biblical metaphor, and it might be the most visceral of all the metaphors for us, and that's the relationship between God and his people that's mirrored or is talked through the metaphor of the relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, we spent four weeks last year dealing with this one metaphor, you may remember if you were with us, we spent the holidays with Hosea, an entire Old Testament book that plays out this metaphor between God and his people for us in a vivid and dramatic way. God told his man Hosea to go marry a particular woman. Her name was Gomer, and she is what we would call a wayward woman. And Hosea did what God had said. He married Gomer, and he loved her. And the problem is she didn't love him back. She was utterly unfaithful, continually going off and being unfaithful to Hosea and becoming involved with other men. And at one point in the letter, they're going back and forth through this. God, so to speak, I'll, I'll summarize it for you, basically says to Hosea, now you know what it's like for me because I too love a people who don't love me in return. See, James starts this way because he means to get our attention. And in getting our attention, he is communicating a freight train of information. He is saying that God's people, he's writing to the church, are guilty of being unfaithful to God, of breaking our promises to God, because essentially that's what adultery is. It's the breaking of the covenant promise, the breaking of the covenant commitment and faithfulness. And so James gets the attention of God's people by saying that you are indeed adulterers, unfaithful to God. And how am I unfaithful to God, James? Well, he's gonna tease that out for us here in what he says next. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And here in teasing out what our unfaithfulness looks like, how we are indeed unfaithful and guilty of unfaithfulness to God, I think Hosea, I mean, excuse me, James is taking us into the heart of what is indeed our greatest danger, the greatest area of our deception and blindness. You see, underneath this unfaithfulness, is a disordered desire 
We talked about the disordered desires of the heart last week that James was talking about that are part of having a false wisdom. But there's another disordered desire. And this disordered desire is the desire for what James calls friendship with the world. This friendship with the world that James is trying to point our attention to, it's different than what you or I might actually think at first pass. Friendship in James's world, the, the word that he uses, the freight behind it, the way that it was used in other literature of his day, carries a completely different tone and a completely different way than the way that you and I use the word friendship or speak about friends. And the world that James lived in and the way that this particular word was used, this word tried to communicate the weight of, of an interdependence and an interconnectedness that you and I have a tendency to romanticize, but yet never truly be able to actually live out. In this friendship that James is talking about, he's talking about an interconnectedness and an interdependence where not only everything about life was shared, goods and, and time and, and communication, but there was an interdependence and a desire for those with this kind of relationship to shape and to mold and to direct, to direct one another. There was a, an intimacy and an interdependence in this word and in what he's talking about here that you and I just, we talk about, we, we aspire to, but the reality of it is we live in a different world than James did and, and we have a hard time trying to live out what it was he was talking about. You see, before the Industrial Revolution, for the most part, people lived in, in communities or in societies or, or in groups that would span four generations in a place, in a, in a home. And people of one particular trade always lived near the people of that particular trade, wherever it was they lived. And so there was this crazy interdependence amongst the people where all was shared, all was helped. The expectation is that you would do what your dad did and what your uncle did and what your granddad did and what your mom did. And there was all these things that were shaping you and forming you and you were shaping and dependent upon each other and helping each other and directing each other. And once the Industrial Revolution set in, the way that people lived, the way that people were connected, the way that these societies were woven together, the way these relationships were woven together began to fragment because people began to go away to work, leave their home and go out somewhere else to work. The interdependence began to shift. And so now we are here in the 21st century and, and we build neighborhoods with, without even sidewalks to be able to walk around and see each other and, and talk to each other. We, we build eight foot fences in our backyards to keep people out from what we're doing in our yard. We build driveways to go into garages so that we can have our breakfast in our kitchen and go into our garage and get in our car and back out and go to work and come home from work and drive up our driveway, go into our garage and go into our house and never have to talk to anybody else. You can live 10 years now in the exact same home and never actually engage in a meaningful way with the people closest to you. But yet if we talk about it in the world that we live in now and the culture that we live in now, we've all got tons of friends. And the reality of it is we, we have casual acquaintances. Don't get me started on the way the internet and social media has fractured this whole thing. Social media has created this hollow sense of connection between people. That's simply because we know information about people, simply because we can peer in from the outside into their lives and feel like we know things about them that we actually know them. I will just tell you, as I've told the other two services, for anyone my age or older who, who did their teen years, their young adult years, without this whole social media thing, the reality of social media is what we would have called a decade ago stalking. It's, it's true. 
peering in voyeuristically into other people's lives and building this false sense of connection with him. It's hollow and it's this drug-like numbing effect on our brain that convinces us that we actually know them, that we're actually friends. The reality is we're not. It's false. See, friendship in the way that James is talking about it, the weight of the word that he's actually using, it's an interconnectedness and an interdependency that is shaping, that is forming, that is directing. And he says underneath this unfaithfulness to God is a desire in our heart for this kind of friendship with the world, this kind of shaping, this kind of forming, this kind of directing, this kind of validating from the world. What he's saying is our heart has has wandered away from our one true love. It's wandered away from the Lord and it's finding its satisfaction, it's trying to find its value, it's trying to find its purpose and validation in other lovers. That's That's the illusion, that's the metaphor. We desire to be shaped by the world around us. Our hearts are saying who God is for us in himself is not satisfying. I'm going to those who are at enmity with God to be satisfied. Friendship with the world is not talking about friendship the way we think about it with particular people. It's talking about a desire for this kind of relationship, this kind of shaping and forming and molding from the world itself. The people that James were writing to, they were sincere followers of God. They were not rejecting God outright, but in their heart, they were wandering from God, seeking from the world around them, from the priorities and the purposes of the world around them, what was only meant to come from God himself. They wanted both. They wanted friends with benefits. James says it's spiritual adultery. And frankly, it's our biggest problem. See, the reality of it is we can't be loyal and committed to the kingdom of this world. It's, it's priorities, it's intents, it's purposes, it's values. We can't be loyal to it and to the kingdom of God. The values are at odds, the, the worlds are at odds, the, the kingdoms are at odds. To try to play them both off, to try to get benefit from both at the same time, James says it's, it's spiritual adultery. It's unfaithfulness. And it's a big deal. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Remember, he's not talking about friendship with people. He's talking about this kind of interdependence upon the values and the priorities of the world to shape and direct and conform. It's wanting what the world says it can give and what God says he is and can give at the same time. It's double-mindedness. James has already been on this. And it's no small thing. It's no small thing. And the reality of it is, kind of like Plantinga was saying in what I read earlier, we've gotten to a place where we have a tendency to smile at it, to wink about it, and even to speak about it with a tone that communicates a levity about it. And James says, Liz, this is the heart of the problem. But here's something I love about James. James says things, let's just be really honest. James says things you don't want to hear. He says them in ways you wish he would say differently. But I love that when he gets to this, and this really is the heart of the letter, when he gets to this, James doesn't simply just diagnose the problem. James lets us in on how God responds to it. And based on how God responds to it, James directs us towards how our hearts are meant to respond to him. 
Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, the way that God responds to his people in their state of unfaithfulness to him is absolutely astounding. Listen to what James says. Do you suppose, verse five, that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I mean, just like in Hosea, just like in Ezekiel, just like Isaiah and even in Jeremiah where these metaphors of the relationship between God and his people being used like a husband and a wife and there's unfaithfulness towards the other, there's always a point at which God is wooing his people back to him. That God is after the heart of his people being drawn back to him even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And what James is saying here is, is you, are, you are acting to, in this desire, this disordered desire for friendship with the world. You are actually living out an unfaithfulness towards God because you, you can't have both. But in the midst of your unfaithfulness, do you not remember that God is jealous for you? He's jealous for you. Exodus 34, Exodus 20, God speaks of himself as a jealous God. Now, talking about the jealousy of God can be wooing to some when you understand it, but confusing to others when you don't understand it. In fact, it was this whole idea of God being a jealous God that Oprah Winfrey cites as the reason why she's not a Christian. I don't know if you've actually heard her testimony. She's very vocal about it. She talks about it, and this is what she said. She said there was a Sunday morning that she was at a church in New York City, and the preacher kept talking about God being a jealous God. These are her words. I thought to myself, if God can be jealous of me, then he can't be God. And somehow in her listening, and maybe even writing down what she heard, she made a translation error along the way. Because God is not jealous of Oprah. God's not jealous of you. There's nothing that she has or that you have that God needs, and therefore he's jealous of you because you have it and he doesn't. And when the Bible talks about the jealousy of God, it speaks of his jealousy for you. He speaks of his jealousy for your joy, his jealousy for his glory. He knows that your greatest joy and your greatest satisfaction can only be found in him. And he's jealous for you to experience the fullest of joy in him and for his glory to be made known through you. He's jealous for you. He's jealous over you. His glory, your joy, that's what's at stake. John Piper, he said it this way because he's way more eloquent than I am. He said that God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her the, not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness but from a holy indignation into having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. God is jealous for you, for your joy. He's jealous that you experience the fullness of that and it can only be found in him. And here we are prone to wander. We sing it all the time. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. There is a reality that our heart continues to go to those that are at odds with God, the the ideas, the priorities, the values of the world around us and say, you satisfy me because I'm not being satisfied enough in him. And in our wandering and in our unfaithfulness, God is jealous for your joy. 
He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous that you experience the fullness of all that he intends for you. Which is why verse six might be one of the most astounding verses in the entire letter. In the midst of your unfaithfulness, coming headlong like a freight train, colliding with his jealousy for you, James says in verse six, he gives more grace. The way that God responds to the unfaithfulness of his people, the way that he responds to our continual proneness to wander, to seek to be satisfied by something or or someone else outside of him, it's astounding. His jealousy for you burns hotter. His jealousy for you gets amplified. It's as though when he says he gives more grace, it's as though he's turning up the volume on his grace for you so loud that it drowns out the voices of the world drawing you away from him. One writer, I love it, he said this, he, he said, what comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more still to give. Whatever we might forfeit when we put ourselves first, we can never forfeit our salvation for there's always more grace. No matter what we do to him, no matter what we do, no matter how often we wander, he's never beaten, but he gives more grace. Even if we were to turn to him and say, what I have received so far is much less than enough, he would simply reply, well, you may have more. My resources are never at an end. My patience is never exhausted. My initiative never stops. My generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. In light of his response, to his people's unfaithfulness our double-mindedness, our proneness to try to get from him and from the world what each seems to be offering. How, how are we meant to respond to him? He's jealous for us and pouring out more grace How are we meant to respond to him? That's what the rest of the verses are all about. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That that therefore is key to understanding it. Therefore points us back to what James just said. Since God opposes the proud, the call to submit to him, it's an act of humility And so it's the humble, it's the submissive who can expect to receive more grace and more grace and more grace in response to their unfaithfulness. But here's something you've got to understand as we go through what he's saying. Submission in the way that he's talking about it here is not the same thing that we tend to think about. We tend to equate submission with passivity. That's not what submission means here. This word submission is actually taken from the military. It's a military word. The closest thing that we have to what what it entails is enlistment. 
It's this idea of you willingly putting yourself forward under the command of someone else. It's enlisting yourself to the greater cause and under its command. So in light of God's jealousy for you, his jealousy for your joy and his glory, even in the midst of your unfaithfulness, James says in response to his jealousy for you and his willingness to give more grace and more grace, submit. Submit. And then he teases out what submission looks like. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's how he tells us we begin submitting. We resist. It's carrying out this military kind of wartime language. It's resistance. It's standing firm. It's, it's fighting. It's not acquiescing to the work of an enemy. It's fighting for joy. It's fighting for satisfaction in God. It's fighting for delight in who God is for you. Submit resist but then he says in verse 8 draw near to God and he will draw near to you now there's that undertone of friendship again there he talked about our proneness to desire this kind of friendship from the world this kind of desire and tendency in our hearts to be shaped by the world around us now he's speaking again kind of in this friendship language and telling us that part of submission is drawing near to god with the promise that he will then draw near to us but you've got to pay careful attention to the order there if we're really honest we would say it would be much easier to draw near to god if he would draw near to us first but james says part of this submission here's what it looks like it looks like drawing near to God with the promise of knowing that in drawing near to him, he will draw near to you. This kind of drawing near, this kind of fellowship, this kind of friendship and relationship with God, you don't just slide into it. It doesn't just happen. You don't just drift into this kind of thing any more than you and I simply drift into holiness. You have to draw near. Well, how do you draw near? Well, the primary way that God has given us to draw near to him this way and he draw near to us is through his word. I mean, I spent the better part of the early years of my Christian life, eight to 10 years probably, believing if my whole heart that the way that I was to engage the Bible was to know as much about it as I could, know the history behind it, know what was going on when the different authors wrote the letters or the books that they wrote, have as much information, almost like an encyclopedic information about the Bible. I never truly understood the point of my engagement with the Bible was to draw near to God, that he would draw near to me. I thought it was that I might know a lot about him. Eight to 10 years of acquiring information about who God is. Never realizing that the point of being able to engage with the Bible was to be able to engage with him. To draw near to him and he would draw near to me. I thought that was supposed to happen somewhere else. And I thought I was just missing it. I was doing something wrong in my life and therefore I wasn't able to draw near to him and he wasn't drawing near to me because it didn't happen here. Now see, we don't engage with God's word like we engage with a newspaper or an encyclopedia. We don't engage with God's word to get information about God. We engage with God's word that we might draw near to him and engage with him knowing that he draws near to us. You see, it's an engagement with God himself every day through his word that we're reminded that he is the one who gives grace upon grace and yet more grace. And so my hope for you 
is to spare you for eight to 10 years of engaging with God's word like an encyclopedia. I don't want you to think that the Bible is simply meant for your information and for your knowledge. The Bible is meant by God to be a way that you engage with him and draw near to him and him draw near to you. If you've never read the Bible to draw near to God and had him draw near to you in it, let us know. There's nothing more that any of the pastors here would want to do than to help you be able on a daily basis to draw near to God knowing that he is drawing near to you and to experience him as the one who today gives more grace. The one in whom his mercies are new every day for you. And that every day as you draw near to him and he meets you in his word, you're reminded again that he is for you and not against you. That he assures you of who he is for you. If you've never been able to engage with God like that in his word, let us know. We want to help you. We draw near to him through his word and he draws near to us, but we also draw near to him and him to us through his people. God has not only given us his word, he's given us his people. And he means through the relationships that we have with each other to draw near to us. That as we engage with one another, we're actually drawing near to him. As we experience who he is for each other, we experience a new facet of how he loves us and shapes us and guides us and directs us and preserves us. The way that he loves you and demonstrates his love to you and works it out in your life assures me again of his love for his people. I know more of who he is and how he works by the way that my life intersects with you. He draws near and we draw near. One of the best explanations of this actually comes from C.S. Lewis. Many of you are familiar with the fact that Lewis was a part of a small group better known as the Inklings. J.R. Tolkien was one of the members of that group and so was another writer named Charles Williams. And C.S. Lewis wrote, one time of the impact of the death of Charles Williams on this group that we know of as the Inklings. And I want you to hear what Lewis said because he's talking about what it is to draw near to God and God to draw near through community, through relationships. Lewis said, in each of my friends, there is something that only the other friend can fully bring out. You hear that? In each of his friends, in each of the people in this group, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call that whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now, here's an example of what he means. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Did you catch that? Because Charles is dead, he'll never get to see Ronald respond the same way that he only responded to a joke that Charles said. It took Charles to bring something unique out of Ronald. And it's gone now. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. In this, Lewis said, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance. A nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed which no man can number increases the fruition which each of us has of God. You hear that? Together, increasing the fruition that each of us has of God. For every soul seeing him in their own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an older author, is why the seraphim and Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. Thus, the more we share of the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. See, Lewis is saying it takes these kind of relationships, it takes this kind of community to know a complete individual. 
And as we know one another this way and live with one another this way, God actually uses these relationships for us to draw near to him and him to us. Draw near. Draw near. And he'll draw near to you. But that's not all he says. Look what he says next. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What what does submission look like? What does it look like in the life of God's people in response to his jealous love for us in the face of our unfaithfulness to him? It looks like cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. In the Bible, when it talks about the hands like this, it's always talking about deeds. It's a picture. It's a metaphor. Speaking of deeds, actions, when it talks about our heart, our hearts are, are the seedbed of our thoughts and our intentions and our motives and our desires. What James is saying is that submission to God, responding to God's jealousy for you in the the face of your unfaithfulness and his willingness to give more grace to you in the midst of all that looks like dealing with sin in a realistic and holistic way. And I say holistic because it's not just about the things you do. It's not just clean up your hands. Stop doing X, Y, or Z, although that might be part of it. It's purifying your hearts. It's dealing with the thoughts and the intentions and the motives underneath it. Because I'll give you a little insight to me into my heart and how this works out. I am not one that has a difficult time stopping to doing something if I'm told I'm supposed to. I generally thrive under being told to be obedient. Like I was one that liked to please people. I like to do the right thing. I didn't want people to get upset. So when I learned that I'm not supposed to do something, it's not hard for me to stop doing it. But here's the thing. I never really tell you what's going on in my head. So while I might do the right thing on the outside, there's an internal monologue and conversation going on in my mind that is absolutely tearing someone or something apart. And it can go on for days. I can harbor that thing and feed that thing. And James is saying, if you just clean your hands and deal with what's on the outside, you're not dealing with sin seriously. And you're not dealing with it holistically. Because you can do everything on the outside and it can all look great while on the inside you're nursing and harboring all kinds of conversations and thoughts of bitterness and anger and envy. He says you've got to deal with sin. Submission, surrender to God who is jealous for you and gives more grace even in the face of your unfaithfulness looks like responding to him by dealing with your sin seriously. I had a conversation with someone the other day who thanked me for the way that I actually said something to them in response to a a constructive criticism and I had to tell them uh, it really wasn't that great of a response. That's not what I intended to say. What I meant to say in the first email didn't sound like that at all. But I knew I needed to respond differently. And so you can be praying with me that my heart catches up with what my head knew to do. Because that's the reality of what's going on inside. And James says that submission to this God who's jealous for your joy and his glory, even though your heart is prone to wander, he still wants to give grace upon grace, a proper response to that when you see it for what it is and you see him for who he is. It's dealing with sin completely and holistically. It's counterintuitive to everything we think because if you're really honest, you think that you've got to clean your hands and purify your heart before you can draw near to God, but that's not the case. James is saying it's really when we draw near to him and he draws near to us in his presence, when we see him again, maybe for the first time or or the first time in a long time and we're face to face with his glory and his holiness that we're able finally to really see who we are and the fullness of our sin. It takes drawing near to him to fully see the reality of what needs to be purified and cleansed sometimes. Sometimes. 
You and I like to think that we have to clean ourselves up first before we can come to him, before we can draw near, but that's not the way it works. Draw near. And the weight of his presence and the reality of his holiness, holiness, it will stir again in you a desire to be like him. And that desire to be like him will look like purifying your hands and cleansing your hearts and conscience. But then there's something else that I think we have a hard time with, particularly in in the world that we live in. In Verse nine, he says, part of this submission, here's what it looks like, here's what it can look like. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The Puritans had a way of saying things that you and I just can't get away with, but something the Puritans used to write about all the time was praying for tears. The common Puritan phrase. They would pray for tears. They would pray that God would cause them to be grieved by their sin. When they felt like they were aware of sin in their life, their hands or sin in their heart, their thoughts, their motives, and they weren't sufficiently grieved by that sin, they would pray and ask God to press upon them the weight of their sin in light of his mercy and holiness to help them see it for what it is and to bring them to grief over it, to help them to mourn over it. And see, here's the thing. It's okay and it's right to be grieved by your sin. I think this is, again, one of the greatest weaknesses of the modern church. I'm not sure that we actually weep enough about our sin. See, we hear that God gives grace upon grace. He gives more grace in the face of our unfaithfulness. And yes and amen to that. But we've gone to thinking and and assuming that that grace removes this grief then. That's not true. The reality of it is the grace that God gives us to see our sin for what it is, is the grace of grieving. Grieving over our sin, weeping over our sin, mourning over our sin in face of his mercy and in the face of his holiness is a gift of his grace. The grace that he gives and continues to give isn't meant to do away with the grieving. The grieving is a gift of grace. I know that I don't grieve sufficiently over my sin. I know that this is a weakness of mine. It was just Thursday for the first time that I felt something begin to well up in my heart and well up in my eyes as I began to grieve over the fact that I don't grieve. That's just getting started. I'm not sure in my life with my whole heart, more than maybe twice, I've ever really prayed for these kinds of tears. We've bought a lie that grace removes this kind of grief and it's not true. This kind of grief is a significant gift of grace. And part of submitting to him is seeing sin for what it is. Responding to it rightly, yes, but part of the response to it is to be grieved by it. How else should we feel when we come face to face with the depth of our own unfaithfulness in our heart and come face to face with his mercy? Come face to face with the grace that he has given us through the death of his son on the cross in our place for our sin, knowing that it was my unfaithfulness that nailed him there. How else are we supposed to feel? It's okay to feel grief for that. I know you're capable of it. I've seen tears flow when you have recognized the way that your words or your actions have hurt someone else who matters to you in your life, even though they've extended forgiveness to you. You can think about it. Someone has forgiven you for something you've said, forgiven you for something that you've done that's hurt them. You still weep over the grief that it's caused them, the pain that it's caused them. You weep over what you've done. That's what he's talking about here. When we see the mercy of God for what it is, the grace of God for what it is, you can't but come face to face with your sin that put his son there. And a right response, a grace response is to grieve. 
James says, let your laughter, let it turn to sorrow and mourning because when friendship with the world is what we produce, friendship with the world produces us laughing at things we're not supposed to laugh at. That's what Plantinga was talking about. We can talk about being in sin with this tone that makes it sound like an inside joke. We laugh about the significance of this kind of unfaithfulness in our heart. We, we laugh about this kind of sin that resides in our heart, this kind of, this kind of defilement that's within us. And how else are we supposed to respond if we come face to face with his glory truly in the person of his son and not be grieved over it? It's not something to laugh at. It's far more serious than I think we believe. And he gives us the grace of grieving over it. And then James says something tremendous. Look at verse 10. This is how we'll finish it. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I mean, really, he's summing up everything that he said. In the face of your unfaithfulness, the proneness of your heart to wander, the proneness of your heart to seek to be shaped and molded and, and directed and conformed and satisfied by the priorities and the, and, and the validations and the purposes of the world around you. God is jealous for your joy. He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for you. He's white hot that you would know him as completely satisfying, that you would not wander away to something else or, or someone else. And in the midst of all of that, he gives grace. He gives grace. How else do we respond other than humbling ourselves? That's what the submission is. It's an act of humility. It's humbling ourselves, knowing that he gives more grace. It's humbling ourselves, knowing that when we humble ourselves, we don't have to pick ourselves up. He will exalt us. Humbling ourselves before him, knowing the promise that he is the one jealous for us. And he is the one that continues to give grace. This morning, we, we have the opportunity as a people to respond to God's word together. In essence, to humble ourselves before him as he speaks and to respond to him as a people. And the way that we're gonna do that looks like this. We're gonna give you two minutes and in those two minutes, it's going to be quiet and we simply want you to reflect. We want you to think about what you heard from God's word this morning. And we want you to consider what's going on in your heart, whatever God, the Holy Spirit, might be doing in your heart this morning. What might he be showing you? Are you willing to ask him this morning to show you where in your own heart, your heart has become unfaithful? What friendship with the world you might be pursuing? Are you willing to ask him what it might look like for you to respond to him based on what he has said? We're gonna give you two minutes to reflect and then after that, as the musicians begin to play, those who have tasted of God's grace and the person and work of his son, we're gonna to respond together by receiving communion. We're going to remember the most significant act of humility in human history when God the son took on flesh and lived the life that each of us was created by God to live and then died the death that each of us deserve because of our unfaithfulness. We're going to celebrate the grace of God shown to us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus as we take communion. Remembering his body broken, his blood poured out, the humility and the sacrifice that made it possible for us to know the grace of God, to come to God in our unfaithfulness and to receive grace upon grace, upon grace. And here's my encouragement to you as you come forward to receive communion. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we are so glad that you're here. 
any of us would love to help you further understand who Jesus is, what he says, and what difference that makes. But this morning, as we come forward to receive communion, I simply ask that you would just stay in your seat, stay where you are, to abstain from coming forward. And I want you to understand that in in abstaining from coming forward and taking communion, God is not abstaining you from coming to him and surrender. He's not keeping you this morning from coming to him and submitting to him. In fact, his invitation to you this morning is a gracious invitation to submit to him, to cry out to him, to recognize your need before him, to confess your sin to him, and to plead for his forgiveness and mercy. Pray for us, and and then as God's people, we're we're gonna respond together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here. Lord, your word says things we don't want to hear. It says them in ways we don't like to hear them, but it says exactly what you want us to hear and need us to hear. Lord, we do not want to live in deception. We do not want to live in blindness. Lord, we do not want our heart to be divided. This morning, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, do the only thing that you can do and you turn the lights on in every heart here. For those who who know you, who trust you, who follow you, but yet who are prone to wander like I am, Lord, show us where we're prone to wander. Show us how in our wanderings you still have remained faithful and you're zealous for us, you're jealous for us. Show us that and stir in us a delight in you, a gratefulness in you, to you, a gratitude for you. And for those who have come in here never knowing you, Lord, turn the lights on. Lord, help them in a way that only you can to see your glory and the work of your son. Draw them to you this morning. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name for his glory, for our joy. Amen.